Uh, we are in Mark chapter 6. We are looking at verse 12 to verse 13. And uh, we are, the sermon title today is Dying for Jesus. John, James, Stephen, Antipas. Uh, these are the names of followers of Jesus who are recorded in the Bible as having been killed for their faith in Jesus. But we know that their death was only the beginning. Uh, history actually tells us that when Jesus said, follow me, for many of his followers, it literally meant following him in death. Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified in Greece. James was beheaded. John was exiled. And we can go through the list on and on and on of the apostles and, and many others that followed them. Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, uh, verse 34 to verse 35, a passage we'll study later, he said this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. And this raises a question which is asked throughout Mark, isn't it? Which we should be asking ourselves as we go through Mark. Is Jesus still calling us to die for him? And if the answer is yes, in what way is Jesus expecting us to take up the cross and lay down our lives? Most importantly, as you sit here this evening, are you dying for Jesus? This is the question we are asking today, and actually it is a question that is asked throughout Mark, and the intensity of the question is going to get stronger and stronger and stronger all the way to Gethsemane. It's an important question, isn't it? Are you dying for Jesus? And to help us answer this question, please turn with me to verse 12 of Mark chapter 6 there. As we continue this journey through Mark, we'll look at how this passage helps us answer that question from verse 12 to verse 30 of Mark chapter 6. And there's just three observations I want to make from this passage. The first observation is this. Many people are blind to Jesus. Many people cannot see Jesus. They are blind. They are confused by Jesus even. We remember last week that we left the disciples on the road sharing Jesus in the villages of Galilee, and they have made quite an impact. Jesus has sent them out, and they are making an impact. Let's read verse 12 to verse 14. So they went out, Jesus has sent them, and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons, and anointed with oil many who were sick, and healed them. And verse 14 tells us now, King Herod, ahead of it, for Jesus' name has become known. The disciples have gone out and, and Jesus is getting a lot of publicity from the work they've been doing. But sadly, it is confused publicity. People, instead of having more clarity about who Jesus is, they're actually confused about who Jesus is. Let's read on verse 14 to verse 16. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So they think it's John the Baptist, basically. Or somehow John is working in him, either possessing him or something. 
Verse 15 says, but others said, no, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Now, this is the first time that we are learning that John the Baptist, the man sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus, has been killed. This is the first time we are learning about it. Remember, we left John in prison in Mark chapter 1. But now we are learning that John is dead. And we'll come back to that in a moment. The point I want us to see just briefly here is that the people of Galilee think Jesus only in terms of popular figures in history. They have no category for Jesus as God at all. They just think of him as past figures. Uh, Usually when a new talent comes along, uh, people like to compare them to past figures, don't they? So if you like football, you know that Messi, when he blew up, right, in football, people thought he was a new Maradona, right? Mrs. May, actually, when she blew up on the scene, people thought she was a new Maggie, a new Thatcher. People like to think of new talent, even musicians, in terms of the people that have gone before. And this is what people are doing with Jesus. They can say Jesus is special, a new talent, so to speak, on the block, has blown up. But they can't think of Jesus any more than just thinking of him in terms of people that have gone on before. And they are certainly not thinking of him as God at all. And we see this today. Uh, Islam, for example, is okay with Jesus as one of its prophets. They are happy to rank him alongside previous prophets and they can add him to their list. Uh, We see it in... uh, Uh, Hinduism, Hinduism is actually okay with Jesus as one of the many, many, many gods, not as anything unique. The humanists said Jesus is a great moral teacher and they could add him to other moral teachers like Buddha and others that have sprung up in history. People have no problem adding Jesus to their lives. They have no problem with that. And we see it even in churches, isn't it? Many people say Jesus is God and deserves our worship. But none of them are willing to lay down their lives for Jesus. In other words, intellectually they can see he's God, but practically they don't treat him as the only God. They believe Jesus is God, but only as an addition to their lives. When you say to them, Jesus is God, we're dying for them. I'm not sure about that. You see, people want Jesus to fit into their view of the world. Why are people like this? Why are they so blind to Jesus? About who he really is. Well, that brings us to the second point we learn here. Uh, People are blind to Jesus. Many people are blind to Jesus. And the reason for that is that sin blocks us from seeing Jesus. Sin blocks us from seeing Jesus. And Mark shows us this point here, um, how sin blocks us from seeing who Jesus is, uh, or has blocked the people of Galilee from seeing who Jesus is, by focusing on one person who represents the people of Galilee. That's how he does it. He wants to show sin has blocked the people of Galilee from seeing Jesus. So what does he do? Well, he goes to their king, doesn't he? He looks at how Herod is reacting to Jesus. How sin is preventing Herod 
from seeing who Jesus is. If we can understand why Herod is blind to Jesus, we will understand why people under Herod, the people he's ruling over, the people in, in Galilee are blind to Jesus. And if we can understand that, we can also understand our own blindness to Jesus. So the question we have to ask is, why is Herod confused about who Jesus is? And the answer is in verse 16. Isn't it? That's what you see there. When Herod hears about Jesus, what does he say? But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, right? He said about Jesus. But no, the name that comes to his mind is John. John, whom oh I beheaded, has been raised. John, Herod is having nightmares. He can't sleep at night. He's beheaded this man, John. And everything in his life now, in the way he sees Jesus, everything is driven by his, the sin he has committed. Now, what is this sin? Now, before we look at Herod's sin more closely, we need some background uh, to who Herod is. This is very important. There are many Herods in the Bible, of course, and or two of them in particular are mentioned. Uh, three, we might say, actually, if you look at Acts. Now, the Herod here is Herod Antipas. Okay? He's the second son of Herod the Great, the evil man who tried to cancel Christmas. Right? The Herod who tried to kill baby Jesus, that is his dad. That is Herod the Great. The Herod here is Herod Antipas. Now, you may remember that the Herod the Great is an Edomite. He's not Jewish. He was not Jewish, right? Uh, the, the, he had been put in charge of the territory of Israel by Rome. He was sort of a proxy ruler. He was helping their occupation of the Holy Land, so to speak. So that was Herod the Great. Now, after Herod the Great dies, right? Herod the Great, the territory is split into three areas under his three sons. So, Achelas, who we meet in Matthew, Achelas is ruling Judea to the south, right? Philip, the guy we're also going to meet, or we, we, met, if we, we, we meet in other passages of Scripture, is ruling Samaria, which is the central province of Israel. And Herod Antipas, or Antipas sometimes referred to, is ruling Galilee to the north. Now, Antipas, right, has fallen for Herodias, the wife of his half brother Philip. He has divorced his first wife. Right? The daughter of King Herodotus IV, that has plunged the areas into a bit of a war because he divorces this woman, his first wife, and he has married Herodias now. Now, in addition to Herodias now being his wife, remember Herodias is actually the wife of his half brother Philip, Herodias is also the daughter of another half brother of Philip. Right? This is important. So, Herodias is both Herod's sister-in-law and his niece. Right? Does that make sense? And then his wife, of course. Right? Right? So, the Herod dynasty would fit very well on the Jeremy culture. I mean, if you have them there, you would know it's related to who and to be careful. Right? Now, around this time, John the Baptist has appeared as a great preacher. He is calling on people to repent and, and to show that they have repented by being baptized. And so John only fears God. 
And he has heard about Herod's uh, adultery, so to speak. And he has already told Herod Antipas to repent of his adultery with Herodias. Which, of course, means ending the relationship, right? This naturally has upset Herodias, right? She doesn't want to lose her husband, right? A new husband. And we imagine it does not take a long time before she orders Herod to lock up John, so to speak, in the Belmash of Galilee. Look at verse 17 to verse 19. That basically hopefully gives you the background so you to understand these verses. Verse 17 19 says this, For it was Herod, this is Herod Antipas, who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Why? Well, because John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So John is locked up. But I just want to point out that there are two people here in prison. Okay? There are two people locked up. One of them is John. He's physically in this prison. But John actually is free spiritually because even though John has been locked up by Herod, John is free before God. He's been telling the truth and he only lives to please God. He's in jail, but he's actually free before God spiritually. Herod is free physically, but he's in an invisible prison. What is the prison that Herod is under? Well, the prison that Herod is under is that he lives to please people. He is a slave of everyone he comes across. And he's especially a slave of his wife. He lives for her. He can't do anything unless Herodias approves of it. And the first thing we have to ask ourselves is this, which of these two people are you this evening? Are you like John who is willing to take a stand and call out sin in a loving way in people around you, including in the life of the church? Or are you, right, more like Herod, whose main aim in life is to be liked by everyone? And we'll see later, he's going to kill John just because he doesn't want to lose face. Are you more like Herod? And there's a direct application here actually for husbands here. That is a direct application. Husbands, are you like Herod? Are you immobilized by your wife? Do you take decisions in the home only when it pleases the wife? Or are you showing leadership in the home? You know, I've seen husbands in the lives of, of, of many churches stop going to Bible study or even church because the wife said they needed time together. And if she couldn't go, well, you can go as well. I've seen that in the life of the church where a, a husband doesn't even function the way God has appointed because the wife has just choked, choked their life so much that she, he can't even save God. And so there's an application here directly for husbands of whether we as husbands are showing real leadership in the home. But there's also something here for wives here, you don't escape, to examine yourselves. You are sending your husband and yourself to hell if you are competing for first place with Jesus. 
If you think you and Jesus are on the same path and therefore your husband has to live to you, then of course you are competing against Jesus. A loving wife should always take up the cross and ensure that the husband's relationship with Jesus is topmost. Should ensure that the husband is properly plugged in the life of the church. Probably plugged in, getting the mentorship that it needs, being discipled. That's what a loving wife does. And the loving husband does the same thing to the wife. My, I'm feeling myself, I'm preaching to myself. It's, we, as husbands, we must free up the time. We must be willing to take up the cross so that our husbands, our wives can be, our wives can be <laughs> built up in the life of the church. That's what it means to truly love a wife, because if, 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 if the life of a wife is only about me, then, frankly, I'm competing against Jesus. A husband should constantly take up the cross so that the wife can, can truly love the Lord Jesus. Because, you see, if you live for the applause of people, including your spouse, rather than God, then you are really their slave. We have to get this right. The only person who we should be slept to really is Jesus. And if you just live for the applause of anyone else, the approval of anyone else, you're really their slave. And actually, I'm digressing here, but there's a simple test for us to ask ourselves. When was the last time you had a real spiritual disagreement with your wife? If you're a husband. You say, you know what, we're not going to do this because I believe God wants us to do this. A real spiritual disagreement. I think you, if you've never had that, then I think it's serious. Because no matter, your wife is not Jesus. Right? She's not. What I mean by that is that she's not perfect. So if, if, if you're living right with the Lord, you're always going to find yourself disagreeing somehow, even with the most holy wife, on certain issues. And the same is true. <laughs> I mean, if, if as a wife you don't find yourself disagreeing with your husband at all, it means you're not living, I think, for the Lord as you should. Because your husband, there are always things he needs to learn spiritually. There are always opinions he's going to take which aren't biblical. And if you are growing closer to the Lord, then you find yourself disagreeing. And it's through that disagreement, actually, I should say, is how you both grow, you both come to seek the Lord first. This is a hard passage for us. It's a hard passage for me when I looked at it. But it is challenging all of us, isn't it? We are either living for God or we are slaves of other people. And here's the thing. Here's the thing what I've learned. Okay? Pleasing people never works. Do you know why? The more you please them, the more they demand from you. I didn't make that up. I, see, I, saw, I saw it from Herodias. If you live to please people, they always demand more. <laughs> if we are living to please our wife, I have to always want more. Trust me on that. Husbands, you already know that, of course, don't you? And vice versa. If we are already just living to please our, uh, our husbands, if you are, if you, if you, for, for a wife, the husband always demand more. And we see that with the Rodias here, she's, never, she's not satisfied that King Herod has put John in jail. She wants more. Let's read on verse 19 to verse 20. And Herodias had a grudge against him. So John is locked up, but she has a grudge and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. So there's a Game of Thrones thing going on here. You know, he's locked up, but she's still looking for ways to 
uh, put him in jail. Verse, to put him to death. Look at verse 20. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept himself. So he's keeping himself from who? From Herodias. Herodias wants to still kill him while she's still there. But he's doing everything to keep himself while in jail. She's a very powerful woman, obviously, Herodias. When he heard him, the reason that we go on to read verse 20, when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Okay, so, so, so essentially the only thing keeping John alive is Herod's conscience. But that is about to be suspended because you see, Herod is about to get drunk and take in more alcohol and do a bit of partying. And for that period, the conscience is not going to function as it's been functioning because Herod is about to throw a big birthday bash. And he has invited Galilee's greatest, right? And the top attraction now is Herodias' dancing daughter, uh, history calls her Salome. Uh, she's actually not the little girl we see in movies. Salome is actually a married lady at this time. She's certainly a married age, even though she's still technically defined as a girl. And uh, she's Herodias' daughter uh, by, uh, by the first marriage that Herodias has. So this is not directly uh, Herod Antipas' daughter. That's why she's referred to as Herodias' daughter, because she's Herodias' daughter from her first marriage. This actually makes her Antipas' granddaughter, if you're following the chaos I described earlier in this family. So, she's a top attraction, and let's read on verse 21 to verse 22. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. For, for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. So he's done this birthday bash, and he's got this young lady dancing for them, and undoubtedly in a sensual way as the dancers were at this time. Let us just pause that scene there at uh, Herod's party. The spectacle before us is most disgusting, isn't it? What are we looking at? We have in front of us a young lady being brought to dance, in an adult, in, 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 a, in a way that is sensual, for old men. It doesn't look right, does it? And the Me Too movement rightly reminds us that nothing has changed in the world. Women are still used and abused to satisfy powerful men. And as followers of Jesus, we should applaud the goal of the Me Too movement, of fighting sexual abuse and exploitation of women. And part of us applauding what the Me Too movement has been highlighting actually means for us to flag up that the Me Too movement doesn't go far enough. It doesn't go far enough in highlighting the degradation of women uh, in the world. Many women are forced into brothels around the world and uh, are being exploited by the porn industry in the name of consumer choice. And we know for ourselves that governments uh, continue to support the murder of a girl child in the womb, and governments continue to collect taxes from the porn industry, and that demeans women. We know these things. And we also recognize some of the hypocrisy in the <laughs> Me Too movement themselves because some of those elements support these very things. But as believers, we, we should engage with these issues. 
actually. And we should engage our MP on these matters. We should get active to writing to our MPs about these issues, even as we seek to point all women to the only man who truly honors them. The only man who truly honors women is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you see, actually, I don't know about you, but this has been a theme for me that has been at the back of my mind, but we are flagging up here for the first time. Because as we look through Mark, as a woman perhaps reading this, you may have noticed already how Jesus treats women. It's like nothing in his culture. Jesus is always caring for women. We started with the second, the first healing, proper healing was a woman, Peter's mother-in-law. We see Jesus affirming women, the woman with blood, which we looked at, that woman whose society shunned, Jesus reaches out to her. In fact, in that healing, Jesus shows not only the fact that he affirms the abused women, so to speak, who have been shunned away, but he also cares about the little women, the 12-year-old Jairus' daughter, who he raises from the dead. And as we look forward, we're going to see that Jesus, not only does he die for women because he dies for sinners, right? In his resurrection, Jesus first reaches out to women and sends them as the first messengers of his resurrection. Jesus very much places women at the center of his ministry. Now, we don't know why God allows many women to be exploited by men. But we know that God in Christ loves women. And we know that in Jesus, he suffers with them. No one has suffered more exploitation at the hands of men than our God, Jesus. Because actually, when you look at the crucifixion, when you look at the, 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 the death of Christ, no, apart from the slave girl who mentions Peter's name, it is an execution of Christ done by men. The worst exploitation occurred on the cross when God died for us. Jesus knows firsthand what it means to suffer under powerful men. And the cross says there is a God who loves the exploited, who loves especially exploited women, and he has taken on the shame of their suffering so that he can give them life in him. I think the gospel is wonderful news for women. It is wonderful news, especially for the Me Too movement. Because in the gospel we see that all women who have been demeaned by men can come to this man, Christ Jesus, the perfect man. And I think if we are, whether we are ladies or men, I mean, we should pray for opportunities to share this good news, especially to those <coughs> ladies that have been exploited. So Salome has danced. We go back to this. Salome has danced. And uh, Antipas goes gaga, as they say, over at dancing. Uh, let's look at verse 22. We left there in the middle of that. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. He's obviously drunk. Verse 23, And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, 
I will give you up to half of my kingdom. So immediately Salome senses the opportunity for her mother, and she goes to her mother. Verse 24 reads, And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So I wrote Antipas now is checkmated, isn't it? We read on verse 26 to verse 29. He has nowhere to go now. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, verse 29, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So there it is, the scene um, that, that Herod was really uh, shocked about, that, that, that has given him nightmares, we met in verse 16, is that is how he's beheaded John, and that, that sin he's committed now has left him really worried. And instead, when he hears that Jesus has come in town, instead of him going to Jesus and asking Jesus to forgive him, he's actually just shaken by it. He thinks it's sleepy hollow. If you've seen the movie, he thinks, you know, literally we could say Herod has lost his head, isn't it? Uh, and, uh, and because he thinks, you know, because of course he's got rid of John's head and he's really worried that nightmares have come to town. He's terrified of Jesus. He's like Adam and Eve, isn't it? Herod is hiding from the face of God after sinning, the very God who can forgive him. And what is true of error is true for all human beings. Our sinful nature, coupled with Satan's work, blinds us to Jesus. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So in order for us to see who Jesus is, God needs to open our hearts so that we can see Jesus. We need to see the Jesus revealed in the Word of God, but God has to open our hearts because as human beings, we're not interested in seeing Jesus. Sin blocks us from seeing Jesus. But the good news is that God is able to open our eyes to see who Jesus is in the Scriptures. And when we look at Jesus in this passage, what do we see? Well, we see that Jesus is God worth dying for. And that's the final point I just want to flag up here. So point number one, many people are blind to Jesus. Why? Because sin, point number two, sin blocks us from seeing Jesus. Right? So who then is Jesus? Right? When, when God opens our eyes, what do we see when we look at Jesus? Well, Jesus is God worth dying for. Now, when we've been in Mark for, for a while, and I introduced this concept called a Mac and Sandwich. Yeah, you might remember that. I, I mentioned for those who are here that Mark often splits stories. He starts off with one story, then he tells another story, then he comes back to it. Well, we have another example here of a Mac and Sandwich. I think this is the fourth Mac and Sandwich, but uh, I, I'll leave you to check that. So we have another Mac and Sandwich here. You notice that the manner of John is placed between Jesus sending out his followers in verse 12 to 13, which we read. Notice verse 12 to 13 says, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick 
and healed them. Right? That was the beginning. And then the story ends in verse 30 there. The apostles returned to Jesus, right? And told him all they had done and taught. So when you're reading Mark, the first question you have to ask is, why has Mark done this? Why has it split what should be a fairly self-contained story and inserted in the middle the story of the beheading of John the Baptist? Well, the reason for that is that John, uh, Mark wants us to see that John has lost his life because he's a faithful missionary for Jesus. In the same way Jesus has sent out, John the Baptist has been sent out. And in that process of being sent out by God to prepare the way, to proclaim Christ, well, he has died for Jesus. He has died in the mission field. Now this point is very important because remember, Mark is writing this gospel account to followers of Jesus in Rome who are also being beheaded by the emperor Nero. And some of them are being torn by wild beasts, etc. Right? So what Mark is saying to them, he says, Look at John, beloved. Do you see how faithful he died for Jesus? We also need to be faithful. Because Jesus is God we're dying for. And Jesus is God we're dying for, not only because Jesus is the God who created us, and therefore, by definition, he owns every breath we take, but it's much more than that. Jesus is worth dying for because Jesus has laid down his life for our sins. So that we can be forgiven by God and live forever with him. Where do I get that? Well, we simply just need to look at the death of John the Baptist here. It is meant not as an end in itself. Rather, it is a road sign pointing us to the death of Jesus on the cross. As you read this passage, you should see something of Jesus' own death. Because you see, like John, Jesus dies where? At the hand of an evil king who felt torn by the situation. Herod felt torn by it. Pilate felt torn at killing Jesus. Both of them felt some warmth toward Jesus. But in the end, still killed him. Why did, they, why did, why did Herod kill uh, John? Why did Pilate murder Christ. Well, because of social pressure. Different pressure but social pressure. Like John, Jesus dies. Notice how he dies. Jesus dies holy and innocent but crucially no word from John. Jesus died. John dies silently. And Jesus in the same way dies as we're told in Isaiah. As sheep silent before their shearers. So When we look at the death of John, it's a picture pointing us forward to the death of Jesus that is to come. It is a brutal foretelling. We see the only last time we saw something like this is in the life of Samson. Now another person, by the way, this is another important connection. The last person who projected Jesus' death was Samson in Judges. And he was conceived by the Holy Spirit from birth. The second person to project the death of Christ is John the Baptist, also conceived by the Holy Spirit from birth. But just as the event is more important than the roadside pointing to the event, Jesus is superior in every way to John in his death and his personhood. Because you see, Jesus is the almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful God who spoke the universe into existence, who willingly, by choice, dies a criminal death so that you can be free. 
so that you can have incomparable life with Him. A life of beauty and wonder in Christ. And that's why Jesus has done this for us. And and, and this is why Jesus is worth dying for. And those who truly know this Jesus are so in love with Jesus, right? That they are willingly giving up everything for him. That's what Mark wants us to see. Why would make John die like this? Because Jesus is worth it. And some of you here know something of dying for Jesus every day. You are dying for Jesus by choosing to confront sin in the place of work or the school where your child attends rather than turning a blind eye to sin. You are dying for Jesus by picking up the phone perhaps and texting that person who doesn't mean well for you. It is painful to be humble for Jesus. But you are doing it because Jesus is so wonderful. Some of you are making changes to your life so that you can be in fellowship with God's people in midweek. You want more of Jesus, not more money. Because Jesus is so wonderful. I heard of a new Christian recently, not in this church, who quit a job because she wanted to be in church Sunday evenings, not just Sunday morning. She realized Jesus had saved her from a life of sin and she's given up that job to get it different one that wouldn't allow her to live for Jesus. True followers of Jesus are like that. They die every day for Jesus. It costs us financially, socially, and even emotionally. We often feel the pain of standing alone for Jesus. We do. And I hope some of you here can see some of this in your life. Do you see some of this costly obedience to Christ? Do you feel this costly obedience towards Him? Do you you feel some of the pain of just following Jesus? Well, if you are following Jesus truly, you will feel this pain. If you're not trying to fit Jesus in your life, but following Him, this pain is inevitable. Well, if you are feeling some of that, be encouraged, beloved. The pain you feel shows you are alive. It shows you are a true follower of Jesus. As I said, you are not trying to fit Jesus into your life. Rather, rather, you are slaying yourself for him. So keep dying. Keep dying for Jesus. Because he is worth it. Now I recognize that this message is a, is a hard message. And that's partly why I've always thought this passage is a difficult passage to preach uh, on. For many reasons. For some of the issues, some of which we, we've only skirted about. But I think what makes it so hard to preach this passage, to even think about what's happening here, is that a man has died for Jesus, literally. And for us living here in Bexley Hills at this time, this is something we can for many of us, we just can't process. Because you see, we live in a world where everything revolves around the self. Promote yourself, entertain yourself, comfort yourself. The world tells us, take care of yourself. We even tell people that, you know, you're traveling somewhere. Take care of yourself, right? And sadly, this is how many of us who falsely claim to follow Jesus live. Beloved, for many of us who attend church, there's no difference between our priorities and the priorities of our non-Christian friends. It is tragic that many in churches are running endlessly after the next temptation. The bigger house, the nicer possession. 
They are a success. They're a comfortable lifestyle. We are chasing the same thing the world is chasing. Are we sure we are any different from the world? That's the question John Mark is asking us. Are people who live like this contented in Christ? The answer is no. Is it not true that deep down people who live like this cannot let go of the stuff of the world because they feel they will miss out? In other words, they they, they think that if I don't live as the world does, if if my child doesn't do the same thing the world expects or other things, we feel we've lost something. No, we haven't if we're in Christ. That's what Mark is saying. John lives up the age of 30, right? From the world's perspective, that is a tragic life. It's tragic. But that's the world's perspective. What does God think? And so we have to ask ourselves, are we true followers of Jesus? Would John the Baptist recognize my faith if he saw it? You see, true followers of Jesus gladly live behind the trinkets of this world that it offers. They have found the surpassing treasure in Jesus. The true followers of Jesus are able to die to themselves because they have a new heart. Jesus has transformed our desires. With man, it is impossible what I'm talking about. But with God, it is possible because God creates the church, gives us a new heart, transforms our life. He changes the rhythm for living. Right? He makes us now live for His pleasure. He takes off the blindness of sin and He enables us to see life clearly. He enables us to see a key truth. Jesus is worth dying for. Jesus is worth sacrificing everything for. And this is a question Mark is asking us today, isn't it? Do we get this? Because this question is going to get louder and louder with each chapter. Do we really know Jesus is God worth him dying for for ourselves? Have our lives shown that we are growing in denying ourselves? Growing in dying for Jesus every day? Is there a growing evidence of surrendering to Jesus? If the answer is no, then the hard truth of this passage is that are we sure we are not more like Herod than John? Are we sure we are not more like the people of Galilee than the early church? Are we sure we are not confused about who Jesus is? How do you know what you believe to be Je- about Jesus is what exactly the early church believed? By seeing how the early church lived. Now, the grace of God abounds for sinners, doesn't it? But Paul reminds us in Titus that the grace of God that has appeared teaches us to renounce ungodliness. And because God is so gracious, all of us, when we come to this passage, we are we, 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 we thinking, goodness me, what's going on here? But the grace of God tells us to come before Christ, doesn't it? It tells us we can come to a God who loves us and we can truly ask Him to help us surrender. Because one of the things I always ask myself is this. I pray this prayer before the Lord. I say, Lord, I'm always going to sin against you. I will. I'm always going to do that. But Lord, make me not live in denial of my sin. 
Make me know what true faith really is. And as long as I know what true faith really is, then I can come before God and plunge in His endless grace. And so I just want to encourage you, as we look at this very difficult, as we look at this very difficult passage, I'm thankful for Brother Gavin's sermon earlier on Mark, on, um, on Psalm 23, that reminded that Jesus is a great shepherd of the sheep. So as a believer, you can come to him honestly and confess your weaknesses. Ask him to help you have a faith that truly believes Jesus is worth dying for. And for many of us, perhaps starting in the home, examining how we relate to our wives, especially for husbands here. And see whether there is something of a radical surrender in those relationships. And then examine how we relate to yourself in the life of the church. Because Jesus is really worth dying for. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy. I thank you for your people here. I thank you for the patience with which they have heard your word. This is a difficult passage for us. The life of John the Baptist challenges us. But also it points us to, to a wonderful Savior. Jesus who has laid down his life for us. We can be thankful, Lord, that you don't ask us to do anything that you yourself have not already done for us. You have already laid down your life for us. And because you have laid down your life for us, you encourage us to come to you to lay down our life for you. Your life has infinite worth because you are God. Our life, Lord, is really nothing compared to yours. And so you can never be in debt towards us. Remind us of these great truths. Help us, Lord, to truly trust you with our lives, to put you first. In Jesus' name, amen.